Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fourth series, we'll be talking about flux and flow, how we navigate change and the forces that steer our lives. As this year has unfolded, the world has seemed at once more remote and, somehow, more connected. We've all grown increasingly accustomed to speaking to one another at a distance, from the safety of two metres, behind masks, and via our computer screens, no matter where we might be. In September, the publisher Charmaine Lovegrove and I spoke online, me in the UK and she in her new home of Berlin, where she runs Dialogue Books, home to voices often excluded from the mainstream publishing world, including those in the LGBTQI+, disability, working class and BAME communities. Charmaine and I discussed how society is shifting and how her own life has encompassed London, Edinburgh, Bristol and Berlin, a period of homelessness, a stint selling books under Waterloo Bridge and her route to becoming one of the most influential figures in modern publishing. I'm from southwest London, um, from Battersea, and it was just a really magical place to grow up. I grew up between the Clapham Common and Wands of Common, and sort of in between Chelsea and Brixton. So I just had a real range and variety of lives and experiences and cultures around me. You do really grow up in the the whole city. And so my family lived all over London, um, in East London, in North, West, but I really do identify with sort of the whole of Southwest and went to school in Wimbledon and in Putney. And yeah, it was amazing. And to always be so close to the river was something that was really important to me as well. And I think the river makes you think about changes and flow and ebbs. So, yeah, it was a really, really important place to me. I always think it's interesting where you belong in London. I lived in London for a very long time. Um, it's sometimes about architecture, but quite often it's about the ratio of buildings to sky, I always think. You know, there are parts of North London that feel really discombobulating to me because there's a lot of sky, whereas I lived in East London for a long time and it feel it felt... I don't know, just like a, well, this sounds slightly crackers, doesn't it? But a, sort of a nice, a sort of easy balance of sky and building to me. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I moved to East London when I was 18. I mean, I lived in Hackney for as long as I've lived anywhere, mm-hmm. you know, from 18 to 28. And I think, yeah, the sky is definitely different. It's more built up. You know, South London's very special because it's really central, but the access to green is really important. Mm. That's really clear to me as, you know, needing space within a city is really important. And so now I'm in Berlin. I talk about this with my son quite a lot, who's nine. And we talk about how there's spaces in between buildings and how important that is, that not everything's kind of built up around you, then you can really see this expansive sky. You mentioned you're now in Berlin. You've just moved back there. There's a lot that's happened between between Battersea and Berlin for you. What's your relationship now with Berlin? Does that feel like home? Does it feel home in the way that Southwest London does? Yes and no. Like It definitely feels like home for my family. I feel really rooted here I can see that my husband and son are much 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 happier here and that happened within minutes of kind of arriving at our new apartment but I I just think 
you know, I have four generations of my family in Southwest London and also my Jamaican culture is really rooted there. You know, I always see sort of Germany and British culture as being really complementary. But the thing that's missing is that level of multiculturalism that's different. It's different cultures that are here. And so not having that Jamaican culture means that it could never really properly be my home because there isn't a, a grandma or an auntie that's kind of around the corner that I can just see, even if they're not related to me, just someone that's elder and black and that sage wisdom that comes with that and that look of kind of acknowledgement. I don't, I'm never going to have that here. So it will never completely be home, even if I feel the most comfortable here. Even though you don't have that sage wisdom, do you have something else? Do you have that feeling of reinvention of self? Yeah, I mean, I think on the other side, what I have is a really, um, something that I really missed um, in London and there was a gap was this established literary culture. It's so deep here and so unashamed and the sort of cultural intellectual discourse that happens in Germany is like not many other places. Certainly... London just doesn't have that. It's just not an intellectual city. It might be a cultured city, but it's not really engaged in wider questions around the world. I think that's because of capitalism. I think that's because people are concerned with um, their loft extensions and bifold doors, and they're concerned about other things that are to do with their own sort of status anxiety. And because we don't really have that in Berlin and we don't have that as much in Germany, then it gives space to a lot more of an open intellectual cultured discourse. So that's where I get my sage wisdom from, from publishers and writers and and people who are not involved in these areas, but are engaged nonetheless. Where did you and when did you first engage with that yourself in your life, do you think? I can't really remember sort of never having that, which is why I think I crave it so much. I think growing up between Brixton, Clapham and Chelsea meant that I either had my uncles in Brixton who are black activists, you know, listening to them about the plight of black people in this country and around the world and learning about the history, then in Clapham, I always had access to older gay men and lesbians who would impart knowledge on the fight and activism that had happened um, for, for equality for gay people. And then in Chelsea, I always had, you know, very wealthy British people who would want to talk to me about books. So I don't really... I actually don't recall ever not having that in my life. And I think, you know, when people talk about London being their home, who kind of move there later in life, that in some way, I understand that. I totally understand that. Um, But I think in some way it erases the fact that when you're growing up and those questions you have as like an eight to 18 year old, about the world and who we are and how we live and what interests us and what engages us, then depending, very specifically, depending on who you are, where you are and what you have access to, you know, that experience is very specifically 
of a young Londoner and specifically my experience. And I couldn't, I couldn't have had that anywhere else and it couldn't have been transposed anywhere else. That's why it, it's sort of so deeply ingrained in me. You mentioned about the questions that you have at sort of 8 to 18 or that, that a lot of people have at 8 to 18, but for you very specifically, um, you must have had some pretty profound questions around the age of 16 because you left home then, didn't you? Yeah, I left home. I felt as though it wasn't possible for me to live with my parents. They were very strict. You know, I'm still estranged from them and I don't think you... And that's sort of over 20 years ago. And so I don't think you choose to continue to be estranged from people because it was just kind of annoying teenage angst. You know, I think I could have got over that. I believe that... I needed to move away from my family and I was like a new generation and to live my life the way in which I wanted to live. And it's really interesting now, you know, having a nine-year-old who has a lot of questions about the world and living here in Berlin means that, I mean, I I just feel very vindicated in my decision (laughs) because it entirely worked out and I'm really, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have the life that we have as a family um, had I had stayed. And so for me, it's not really a question of whether or not I did the right thing. But I, I knew at the age of 16 that there were boundaries that I needed to push and areas that I needed to explore and that I wasn't going to be able to do that. And in the end, like, what is a life? And why do you have to be beholden to things that make you intrinsically and deeply unhappy? And I'm very lucky. I'm a very optimistic person. So to be happy is, like, at the very core of my, my need, actually. It's like I need to be happy. And I knew that I couldn't do that in my parents house so yeah I left at 16. (laughs) I love I love that the way you describe that um that must have taken not only a a huge sense of strength but also a a sense of a profound sense of self which I think if you know we're talking about flux and flow are you aware of a sense of of yourself that is steady and immovable and life moves around that and washes against that? Yeah, I mean, that's another, it sort of sounds like another way of asking if I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking of it like that. I was thinking, do you feel, do you feel rooted, I suppose? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, I think one of the things that's really amazing um, is that I have a lot of friends that I've known since I was five or 11 when I started, so when I started primary school, when I started secondary school. So I have a really, I have a lot of people to kind of pull me up if I, I'm doing something that's not true to myself, essentially. And that doesn't really happen because it doesn't really need to happen because um, in all the changes that I've had in my career, then I've always just, I'm always just me. And that's been quite hard at times because, you know, there's also an expectation of what a young black woman from South London is going to be like and when you um, supersede all of those expectations and are a complete individual then it's other people's projection of you that kind of takes a moment to like you have to wait for them to catch up with you basically. I'm really interested in that how does that manifest itself even in the most subtle signs? Well look let's just say that 
there was no surprise to me that like the way in which the white fragility that happened around Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd came to came to the fore because I've lived my whole life with um, white middle class people who purport to be really inclusive, but yet actually live really segregated lives. So we're fine as people from marginalised backgrounds if we're in a box but once you are not in that box then it has it kind of confounds people's ideas of you and who you are and I just understand I just sort of understand that because of how I grew up I like I've it's just always been there and so there's really it's really subtle Mm -hmm. in you know, if someone hears you on the phone and then they see you, then there's like a raised eyebrow when they see you and they're like, oh, you're Charmaine. Yes, of course. You know, and of course it's like, I know, I know this because I've had it my whole life. I know what it means and I see it really clearly. I'm no longer angered by it. I just feel really sorry for people, you know, that the world must be really surprising to them at all times because the world is changing so much and there's so many different types of people who are capable of the same different things. And if you've never recognised that, then you must be in a constant state of surprise, which is actually really unhealthy. Whereas if you expect that people can be anything, then you just can kind of go with the flow of that. And so it was really interesting during the summer to kind of see how people were having to experience self-reflection as to how they've engaged with people from other cultures to them or other races, not even other cultures. And yeah, it was big and people were shook and rightly so. So how different did that white fragility feel to the male fragility of the that- followed the Me Too uprising? I mean, I'm a real intersectional feminist. So I, I, I don't actually kind of follow what happens with like white feminism that closely. Mm-hmm. And I found with what was happening with Me Too really excluded a lot of conversations around what happens in other races you know I mean there's really massive issues in parts of Asia specifically in India around rape there's huge issues in the black community around how as children and as women we're really sexualized and but I just it was really hard to kind of hook onto as a movement because it didn't feel particularly inclusive at all actually and so whilst I kind of could you know I could support it in the same way that I support other issues that don't directly affect me but I also put my energy into things that are just a lot more inclusive and I also have a really big issue around how white feminism tries to erase men whilst being largely cisgendered and heterosexual yeah so I just have like lots of questions around around it because I think what happened with the Me Too movement, what I noticed was that the, the language that was used around men was really toxic mm-hmm. and suddenly it was like all men are bad. And I'm like, listen, like, <laughs> we can't, where are we going with this? Yeah. Um, you know, men are just bad, you know. And I work in a I work in an industry that is 87.4% female and 99.2% white. So there's just a lot of work to do and I don't really engage in anything that 
whilst I understand the importance of calling out those who harm others, that's like imperative, I don't really engage personally or put my energy a lot into anything that I feel villainizes a whole group of people. And what I didn't really see in that movement at that time was working out how we could come together with men and to help them to understand. Basically, there wasn't the same generosity that the Black Lives Matter movement had towards white people, where there's whole books that you could read about what to do and how to change your how to change your position and understand your position in the world and understand your privilege as white people. We didn't actually give the same generosity to men and so therefore it just that doesn't lead to equality for me and so that's brilliant that's my take on it i I hadn't actually thought about it until you asked me (laughs) because i've never thought about it that was amazing (laughs) off the cuff (laughs) um well that's an example of how i just sort of know exactly how i feel and i'm there's no hesitation in how i trust myself and i think you know, when you're creating, when you're someone that's used to creating change in your life, then you have to know, you can't hesitate and you can't second guess yourself. Otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't make the moves that you do. And so I think that's all part of it. You mentioned about there being books that people could read to educate themselves about how to be better people, I guess, or how to be more aware, how to live differently and how to change. Did, when you were leaving home, you then spent a while sort of living in hostels with friends a little bit on the streets I think if that's right but um Mm -hmm. did books present another way of life for you as in this is what I can do totally totally I mean I've just always been a huge reader and I was just looking up The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and sort of what age should you read it at and it was 14 and I think I probably read it when I was nine or 10, I'm really young. And I remember, but I also remember reading Boy by Roald Dahl around that time as well. And, you know, these are really complex ideas around what it means to be seen. And I think that's where, I've never actually thought about this, but I think that's probably where, like, my understanding of equality comes from. Like, if you read Boy, then you understand that you know, a privileged white male such as Roald Dahl can also have a really hard time in the world, you know, that he had tyranny and fear. You know, when I was also reading Dr. Maya Angelou and reading Toni Morrison, then from such a young age, then I understood that there's like a multiplicity of like voices and experiences of different types of people. And so I've never really, I've always kind of, question the idea of privilege and erred towards the idea of entitlement, um, which I think is quite different. But I'm so proud of my culture and being British and being black and being Jamaican. Like, I just think it's such an amazing combination that I never felt sorry for myself. And in reading so much, I always knew that people had been through much more than what I had been through you know living on the streets for a few months isn't the same as being raped by a family member and it isn't the same as living in extreme 
like really extreme poverty where you have no food and you're living in like 1930s America. You know, I understood that living in abject fear from your parents is something that I understood. And so bringing all of these things together in all the books that I was reading just kind of helped me to never feel sorry for myself, essentially. And also to to understand that I could overcome all of these things because these people had. And some of their depths were much darker than things that I'd experienced. And they'd still overcome to achieve great things, which is what I was reading about them. So, yeah, I think I was really lucky that books, I feel like they saved my life and kind of always gave me a path. Um, and I think that's why I do what I do now. How, could I ask how you got off the streets? So I went to a party in <laughs> South London and met someone and then we went to Hackney and then we went to someone else's house and then I started a relationship with someone like that night and then the next day I was like I don't want to live how I've been living can we live together and they said yes and so then we drove around London and picked up all my stuff from various places and then we were together for like four years that's incredible did if your life had been in such flux before how did that new stability feel I think I mean, I know what stability, I knew what stability looked like. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't supposed to be in the situation forever. So for me, it was, I I wasn't sort of bogged down in like, this is, I I knew I had a way out, basically. Like I knew I could get an education. And I mean, you have to really understand that the other people who were around me in hostels and also sleeping rough, like they had come from parts of all over the country, like Glasgow and Manchester and Liverpool, and they'd all come to London and knew no one or anything. Whereas I didn't have that. Like I, I was really at home, even though I wasn't able to live at home and although I was in this terrible situation. And also a lot of those people ended up being preyed upon by pimps and um, dealers and became you know got into drugs and got into prostitution and so it was like that was all happening around me and I was just I was still trying to go to school and do my A-levels whilst they were on the streets you know so it was just a really strange time and so then once I was out of it and I had saw the opportunity and I was like this is what I want to do you know my partner was we were the same age so it was interesting or maybe like a couple of years older than me but it was they got it and it was cool and we had an amazing time but I always knew that my path was different you know and when I'm in Soho now I still see some of the people that I had slept rough with and some of those people have died um, but some of them are still there you know that's that's hard to see that's really hard to see, but it's also the reality of what happens. You know, the, the circuit, I mean, everybody is just so different. Everyone's just so different. When you started selling books, am I right that that was under Waterloo Bridge? Yeah. Was that partly a closeness to ground level selling books to everybody? Or was it just the opportunity came up or, or it was the only opportunity? Well, had? so 
I had my first job at Water like Otterkers, oh, yes, it's called, yeah, which yeah. is now Waterstones in Clapham Junction. <laughs> and I actually met this woman who sort of became my benefactor for a while. Mm-hmm. But I love because I love selling books and I was really good at it. And I, talking to people about books was just something that came really naturally to me. And then I had this friendship with this woman and then she basically helped me when I got a bit older, like after I'd been homeless and yeah but when it was under Waterloo Bridge then that was again like a friend of a friend whose uncle owned one of the stalls and I just knew that I had to work there it was just about the experience and I was living on a boat and it was just a really amazing wholesome time to just talk to so many different people about so many different types of of books and I don't know, there's like a, it's just very romantic, basically. It was like a very, very romantic time in my life. Being next to the river and being on the south side of Waterloo Bridge, there was all these sort of symbols. So I felt really at home and I could just sort of lose myself in, in the books and not really think about anything else. That must have been very hard to leave. Yes, and now I'm trying to remember what I did after that. <laughs> I, went, I went to... I I moved to Edinburgh um, with my girlfriend and did a year at Edinburgh University. It was hard, but I also, I don't know, I was just so, I was was just like such a sponge. Like I just wanted to have as many different experiences as as possible and was really interested. And I often moved because I had a new partner and that was sort of my thing. Is that one of the ways to <laughs> to move through change, just to see it as experience? Is that one of the, the, the tricks? Yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, for me, it's about being very centred in who I am, and so I know that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get hurt, and I'm not gonna go backwards. And also, what can we do? Like, we can only propel forward. Like, the clock moves, the calendar moves. Every day, every minute, every second of every day, we're like, we're moving forward. So for me, like dwelling in like the past or overthinking or what could I do or could I have done differently, etc. It just, that just kind of takes up time because there's just nothing you can do. And ultimately, I'm just like a massive realist, mm. you know, I just don't dwell on what could have been. I absolutely don't have any regrets about anything that ever happened. That's from Yeah. But <laughs> um, so you just to make you dwell briefly on your on your past for a moment. But so you went to Edinburgh. Did you work at Waterstones in Edinburgh? Yeah, I did. And you moved when you came back to London you continued selling books. Was it Waterstones there and then the London Review? Yeah, so I it was Foils and then the London Review bookshop and then I became a literary publicist working for all the different publishers at this consultancy called FMCM. And then I moved to Berlin in February 2009. And you set up Dialogue Books there? Yeah, then I set up a bookshop and we opened it in December 2009. And that became Um, quite a hub for... Because it's an English language bookshop primarily, isn't it? Yeah, so it was the first new English language bookshop in Berlin... And the focus was on sort of international literature and the fact that, you know, if English is a lingua franca, then like, you know, it's really important that we're looking at lots of different types of literature in English. And yeah, it became a, 
a really important hub in the city. We did lots of events and partnerships with Soho House. We had author talks every month that I would host. It was just an amazing seven years, like just really, really incredible. I know that there were many other shifts between then. You became literary editor of Elle magazine and you returned to London for a while. You lived in Bristol for a little bit. Yeah. When you set up Dialogue Books as a publishing imprint, there was quite a a bit of uh, hullabaloo or or scepticism because you hadn't ever worked actually within a publishing Mm. house before. Um, What do you think that you as a bookseller have that is that is different to someone who's just gone straight into publishing at, I don't know, 22 and moved through the ranks? I think I have knowledge of customers and vision of who a reader could be. I, I know that black men read Doris Lessing mm-hmm. and I know that older white women would read a YA book by a Asian author, for example. You know, like I know that what we think is not what what we're told is not the truth and having worked in bookshops for 20 years it's just no question to me and you know a really good example of that is this year publishing um two of my books rainbow milk and the vanishing half Mm. and publishing them on the publication date that they were supposed to be published despite the fact that it was a global pandemic Mm. and the reason that we did that is because we didn't underestimate readers and that people still want to read even if we're going through something that we've never been through before. If people are at home, they're going to want to read. And the difference between me and the rest of the publishing industry is that 600 books were published on Super Thursday, the 3rd of September. And that's a phenomenal amount of books to be published on one day. And most of those books were published because my colleagues in the wider industry moved their books um, because they were worried about the pandemic affecting sales. And now to not risk all of the books of 2021 also being affected by it, then they have to publish them this year. And now they're all being published in a cluster Mm. because they underestimated readers. It's just that simple. And that's difference whereas as said the vanishing half was a sunday times bestseller for six weeks and is selling like hundreds and hundreds of copies a week i mean not just because it's amazing but because it we kept everything that we wanted to do bar her doing live events um because we knew that readers needed something during this time and i think that that's the difference is that where people who have started their career corporate first then they think about their job and the industry whereas I think about the writing and the reader Mm. and that's part of why moving to Berlin kind of gives me that space so I'm not in the industry that I am adjacent to it whilst being part of it. So you mentioned that you don't like to dwell on the past that everything the clock always moves forward you have now set up an incredible life by the sounds of things both professionally and personally with your family and your life in Berlin and your life in publishing do you worry ever about changes to come in the future and that could disrupt that yeah I mean it's really interesting because one of the things that my husband and I realized was that when we lived in Berlin the first time we lived in the same apartment for seven years and then when we moved back to the UK we moved houses 
four times, not to mention the fact that we spent a whole like six months in Airbnbs in Bristol whilst we were waiting for our house to be built. And we really kind of thought about the fact that when we lived in Berlin, there was the first time there was like a lot of personal growth, but there was also stability. And that although the array of jobs that I've done in London was really important and also shows personal growth. I think like the politics and the culture of the UK, I just find really destabilizing. It kind of goes back to that status anxiety. I don't want to buy a house for 1.2 million pounds in zone two. I don't want to spend my life kind of worrying about which restaurants and bars and, you know, <laughs> has been written about in the Guardian and whether or not I should go to them. I really want to have like a very simple life um and i think with brexit looming and the cliff edge i really am very fearful about not being european and so now all of those things have kind of dispersed again i haven't had a single conversation about how much an apartment costs since i've been here we just live and i don't have to worry about being european and so i don't worry about my work because Although I've done lots of different things, I've always worked with books and storytelling. And now I have so much information that, again, I can't go backwards. I can't have never not been a publisher or a scout or a literary editor. And so I feel like I'm home and I don't need to, I don't need to worry about it in the same way that I really did have to come up with like 18 month plans with my family as opposed to five year plans which was very destabilising for me. Yeah, we we touched on the publishing industry and, and how you are operating differently. Obviously, Dialogue Books was set up to increase the range of voices that we hear. I'm just wondering whether you feel that the publishing industry is changing or whether you feel there's been a bit of fanfare this summer that will die down or what, how and how it changes, how a lot of creative industries in general change. So I really worry that people have spent a lot of money now on books that won't be able to earn that advance back um, in being really eager to find black voices for their publishing lists and then how that will affect the comparative system. We have a system where if this book, this book is like this book, so it will sell this many copies and because there's been so few authors writing about similar subtopics within the black community, for example, these are like the first. And so therefore, if their books don't do well, then it will have a massive effect for an, a whole generation. And I just think we're a trend industry. We do work on trends and what's interesting, I just wish that Black Lives Matter wasn't a trend and that we were really much more careful and thoughtful about how we make decisions that will have systemic and lasting positive impact to kind of counter the systemic um, negative impact that we've had. So no, I don't have that much faith. There needs to be like a whole cognitive behavioural therapy with an entire industry to kind of literally change the mindset because it's not just the people at the top, it's also the people at the middle um, where the biggest problem is, in my opinion. And mm. I think that's often like that in big organisations and industries. And it's, it's not even just getting voices in, whether that's you know new um, black writers or whether it's writers writing on gender or sexuality. It's also about the the stories they're allowed to tell, isn't it? So, you know, it's not just, you know, writing about personal experience of 
being black yeah exactly and also you know that whole thing of like if you're white you just get to write about a range of experiences but then if you're black and you're writing about something that is quite specific to the black community then it's like it's also like you're not supposed to do that um but then there's also you know but also when you've been living with race in your whole life which is what black people do and white people don't then everything's about race in you know everything and so we're just not there yet that we have the freedom to kind of see everything without that glare that's been like really really challenging to us and has actually been has actually kind of stopped us from progressing and so of course there's a tone because we've been this is the life we've been living as black people for over 500 years and it's not because we want it to stop that it can. So, of course, these narratives have a similar flow in the way that doesn't for white people. Yeah. But I think in the end, we're all writing about really similar things. I also think that white people are writing about race, even if they don't know about it. Um, but we're all course, writing yeah. about, like, families and relationships and inequality and, you know, and things that are hard for us as individuals. It's just the expectations are different. Is there one book that you turn to in periods of change in your life or or one author even, if that's a little easier, to help you navigate change? Um, Well, there's there's like three authors that I reread a lot. Mm -hmm. So I read Zebald, who's a German author. Um, I read Mm -hmm. all of his works quite a lot. I read um, Toni Morrison and I read John Berger. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I just think they're all writers that speak to me in different ways and have very different ideas about the world, but I go back to their works probably more than any others. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.